Welcome to Built to Scale e-commerce show with Darius and Justin, your backstage pass to the eight and nine figure e-commerce world. Welcome to Built to Scale e-commerce show by Atkins Agency. And today we'll be interviewing Daniel Roddick, a Forbes top 30 under 30 list member and the head of marketing market development at Clear Bank, the biggest e-commerce investor in the world. And in this episode, we'll be diving deep in how e-commerce businesses should be funding their growth, covering their marketing expenses and scaling the business to the next level. So Daniel, super happy to have you here. I mean, it's crazy that over the years I'm able to connect with people like you, you know, that are running, I guess, the game at a completely different level. Super excited to be part of the show today. I really love what you guys are doing. I'm so happy we met through that Deliver conference a little while back. I'm excited to dive deeper in what you're working on and and hopefully add some value to your audience today. Awesome. Perfect. I mean, it's far short, you know, calling somebody a conference right now. It's at most a webinar, but I mean, like Corona does its things. So anyways, could you maybe briefly introduce yourself more to the audience? Maybe tell your story because I know you have like very particular story where you like grew a few businesses, sold them, then transitioned into this kind of things. Happy to give you a bit of background. So I'd say my entrepreneurial career First thing I ever sold online actually was my Game Boy. I had an old Game Boy in the height of like eBay and I was bored with it. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to try to sell this thing and see if I can make some money off of it. And I also had some memory cards and stuff. And this is all over one summer where I learned that like memory cards, for whatever reason, you could buy at a very cheap price and sell for like a pretty good margin. And so I took the hundred bucks I got from selling my Game Boy and stuff to buy a box of junk that I knew in the list of things had a bunch of memory cards and then sold those at like 20 bucks a pop. And so that was like my thing I did one summer. And after that, I actually wasn't like super entrepreneurial or anything like that. I went to school for finance and thought that's where my career would take me. But through a number of different things I did in school, I met a friend of mine and we built a company called Luxbox, which was one of the largest beauty subscription box companies in Canada right at the height of when you could do a subscription box for anything. So right when Birchbox launched in New York, we were launching here in Canada. And this was before the age of Facebook ads and Instagram ads. And at most you had some kind of display, but it wasn't really the evolved ecosystem it was today. So we built our business primarily through influencer marketing. But again, that was not the era where we had to pay. It's if you send someone a box... You know, we had people with 10, 20, 30,000 subscribers, which at the time was pretty large, to write about us. And then we did a lot of deals with publishers where we bundled our subscription with beauty magazines, which like no one gets today, but 10 years ago was still a thing. And so that's really how we built the business, but learned that the market for this wasn't really as big as we thought. And we only had a couple of paths of, you know, raise a bunch of money, enter into the US, launch a retail store. At the time, we're only doing sampling, whereas, you know, Birchbox was doing retail and sampling. But because we, and this will eventually go into our conversation about fundraising, because we didn't really time our fundraise where there's like a good momentum story, but we kind of hit this cap and we're like, okay, now we need money. If there's no growth story, an equity investor, especially a venture equity investor is not really excited to put in money into the business. And so we were forced to figure out, okay, what are our other options here? Um, and so, you know, we went a few different directions. We basically split our team into three. So I took over just like overseeing this business. I think we had two teams go. One was working on a subscription pantyhose business, which arguably I'd say is not a terrible idea, but we were too young back then. We focused our business on Canada and it was really good in the wintertime, but come summertime, 
the business just fell off a cliff. Women don't wear tights in the summer when it's warm. And we took that as a bad sign when really it could have been a pretty decent e-com business. It wouldn't have been a venture scale business. But again, our mindset was very focused on let's do big, amazing billion dollar ideas only. In parallel to that, we've tried to test out starting a food box, which had we thought of it as a meal kit, and we never did. It was just food sampling. We had a deal on the table with the Food Network at the time to do something together with them. But we thought of it as like, oh, who's going to pay $50 to sample barbecue sauce? This is a dumb idea. But had we thought of like basically delivering groceries to your home, like a Blue Apron or HelloFresh, we would have been like one of the first to market with this idea had we thought of it. But we didn't. So you know, we get no credit for that. And we were just basically trying ideas, trying ideas. And then at one point, there was an online retailer named Beyond the Rack, which was one of the largest flash sale retailers in the world, similar to Guilt Group or Rulala. They were the biggest ones out of Montreal here in Canada. And they were also going to do some kind of work with us. And we couldn't figure out a way to partner together. And at one point in some conversation, they were like, well, we want to work with all the luxury beauty brands that you work with at Luxbox, but we just don't really, we're not good at getting in touch with them, them wanting to work with us. Could you help? And we're like, well, yeah, we know them. And so we gave them a call and you know, we basically came up with this idea of instead of using our box that we had to pay money to acquire customers to ship them a sample, what happened if we just piggyback on another person's box? And we went to P&G at the time and we're like, hey, here's this new idea. We have this big retail network where you can target the same audience as we were doing with Luxbox, but instead of being you know, in the tens of thousands, now it's in the hundreds of thousands or millions of customers. And it'll cost you a dollar per sample. And they're like, okay, interesting. And then like within a few weeks, they gave us our first contract. And we're like, okay, that was relatively easy given like our first contract was something like $80,000. And we're like, let's try it again. And then we did something with Crest and it was like a $300,000 contract. Like, okay. And then we pitched Tide. And so basically in the first 90 days, we did about a million dollars in bookings. And we're like, oh, okay, so this is actually the business idea. Let's put all our energy behind it. And so essentially we pivoted our team where I then started working on this idea. And then we had our head of marketing graduate to run the Luxbox business with the idea that we would eventually sell the business and we sold it to a competitor in the space. And then we basically ran exact for the next six years where the start of the business was very focused on just CPGs. So consumer packaged good companies like Procter & Gamble, Unilever, Johnson & Johnson, and then distribution through e-commerce. So our main partners by the end of the business were companies like Kohl's, JCPenney, Walmart, Gilt, Rulala, basically the largest online retailers in North America. But towards the latter half of the business, we saw a huge growth in direct-to-consumer, where we then started doing a lot of work with folks like HelloFresh, which would distribute a gift card through pretty much every parcel in our network. So we did work with all the meal kits, all the mattress companies, all the kind of forefathers of D2C. Casper first did their big Subway takeover, that's when we were going into the DTC market. So anyway, so we built that business. We had the largest distribution of packages in North America. And eventually we, same kind of existential question of like, where is this business going to go next? It was an order of magnitude better than the last business, but still wasn't going to be a billion dollar idea. The big billion dollar business, what you're aiming for, right? Exactly. We saw the path really was that most of the companies that were doing what we were doing in other markets that were bigger than us were just a traditional agency. And not even like digital ads necessarily, but more outdoor, out of home, like your very old school agencies that happen to also do package inserts or direct mail just through the your USPS or, or whatnot. At this point, we went from being a very manual business of where it was an agency, where to do these deals, I just brokered each side to we actually built a self-serve platform with the idea of making this more programmatic and technology forward. And 
we basically went through the process of one company was interested in acquiring us and we had a whole bunch of other offers of people who were interested and eventually did a deal with a company called The Specialist Works, which was an agency out of the UK that entered into the US that we were doing a ton of work with already. And it just made sense for them to take over and really gain a foothold in the US market. They were the kind of the largest players in the world doing this outside of North America. They had clients in China, clients across Europe, and then just starting into the US with our work together. So that deal was done end of last year. In parallel to all this, I've been friends with the folks who started ClearBank, Michelle and Andrew, for a number of years. And my whole background was as an operator of an e-commerce business and then doing a lot of work with partners with everyone in e-com. And so that's why I decided to, to take that skill set and join ClearBank, because I think this company is doing something incredibly special where the business when I joined was probably 150, 180 employees. We're now at over 250. This summer, the last number, the company's almost doubled. We've deployed over a billion dollars in capital. Like It's really on track to go public and be the next big player in, in, in the world of e-commerce. It's really revolutionized how founders can fundraise or really don't have to fundraise. And that really attracted me. I love working with founders. And so that's kind of what brought me here today. And I'm just very privileged to be supporting a number of our founders through bringing on different partnerships with all aspects of the e-com infrastructure. So whether it's payment processors or shipping providers or technology providers, I'm in the market trying to figure out what do our founders need and how do I bring these solutions to them through our partnership program. This is what's interesting, you know, and this is why I wanted to talk with you here. You know, this is kind of like, I guess, a situation that a lot of our clients face when we're growing fast and scaling, etc., we just run out of cash, right? And usually the problem starts that we are not able to order the stock and we have like these kind of dead months, right? Out of the 12 months, we are actually like selling only maybe for seven or eight, right? Because there's like lead times, etc. And depending on the products and where we're manufacturing, it could take up to six months to get an order and you have to meet, you know, minimal order quantities, etc. This is why I'm so excited to talk today because, you know, your product would be exact solution for that huge pain point that so many businesses are facing out here and could bring such a huge value. So maybe you could expand a bit when e-commerce startup or a business should be considering a funding, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think there's like different types of funding for different use cases, right? So you can think of it broadly as there's really three types of funding. There's equity funding, debt funding, and what ClearBank has really been pioneering is what we're calling revenue-based financing. The difference is when you take an equity deal, I'm selling a piece of ownership of my company and that's gone forever until I buy it back probably at a huge premium or I go public or I exit or whatever. Debt is a credit card is an example of debt. There's different types of loans, but really the features of debt is there's typically a compounding interest rate and some type of fixed or forced repayment period. There's a lot of good solutions. If you're an e-commerce business that's doing your own manufacturing, and you're at that scale where you can get lease financing for your machinery or if you're producing food and whatnot, I think that's very useful in those cases. And the trade-off there is depending on the size of business, you're often giving up some type of security. So in the early, early days, if you just get a regular bank loan, most often you're putting up your own personal livelihood, where if you give up what they call a personal guarantee, that means if you can't, as the company owner, pay the loan, they're going to come after you, the human being, for your house or your assets to do it. I'm not saying every loan has that, but when you're an early stage business, and especially if you're in a market where the banking infrastructure is not really great at lending to unprofitable early stage companies, you're going to face all that. At the higher end, if you're one of those Caspers of the world, the darlings of DTC where you've raised a bunch of venture money, you get access to something called venture debt, which is typically a good cost of capital. But again, you're trading off security and assets where they will have rights to all your assets in the case of the company you know, going default or not being payments or whatnot, which again, it's not a good or bad thing, but it's more of just a trade-off of Maybe you're getting better prices, but you're actually putting up a lot of 
security if things don't go as they plan. And every founder knows 50-50 shot, you do something wrong and things won't go as planned, right? We all dream of better, right? And so where ClearBank comes in is we're a different product in that we're tied purely to your revenue and your growth, and we're built to fund that growth. So unlike equity, which has a crazy cost of capital, it's irrecoverable. Unlike debt, which has all the security, it takes you a long time to sign up for and get access to. We have tried to make it really fast and easy to get access to capital where simply you connect your accounts. We judge you purely on your business performance. So we don't know who you are as a founder. And we ultimately only care about how's your business performance? How do we think it'll perform in the future? And we use this data-driven investment model to say, here's a capital we'll give you today. You pay us back as a percentage of your revenues. And that means if the business hits a rough patch, hits a slowdown, our repayments drop and you have some downside protection. And it basically grows and falls with your business. If you do incredibly well, you pay it back a little bit faster, you get access to more capital. And really, we're built to fund growth, which when you're a scaling business, it's like a repeatable investment. It's like if I put money into Facebook ads, and I know consistently I'm getting 1.5, 1.7, 1.3 return on ad spend, there's no risk. There's no material risk associated with it. And so there's no reason why you should spend very expensive capital in the form of equity or very time-intensive to set up in terms of debt to pay for these things. Similar with inventory. Yeah, or just grow organically, right? And just slow up your growth. And this is precisely why, you know, already, you know, I mentioned this to a few of our clients and very interested because this is kind of like such an important problem that we're facing every day that this is kind of like a perfect solution for them. And I commend you for coming up with a solution of this kind of like revenue share. I wish we had it back in the Luxbox days. I would have you know, changed our lives back then. But yeah, it's just meant to be fast, easy, non-dilutive capital and take it as you need it. And if you don't need it, we're here. It's almost like just-in-time capital. You can think of it that way. <laughs> what type of businesses does this apply to? Is it like for smaller businesses or only the ones, you know, like making a few million a year or are you working with like eight figures plus? Yeah, so I think that's another differentiator of why we call ourselves the largest e-com investor in the world because we have the largest portfolio of e-com companies and the reason why is because our process is so efficient and so lightweight, we fund companies as small as doing $10,000 a month. I think our largest company is doing in the hundreds of millions of dollars a month or the year, sorry, <laughs> hundred millions of dollars a year. I wish it was a month. That would be amazing. Maybe by next year they will be. Um, but it spans the gamut because for us to underwrite and evaluate a company that is very small is no different than a company doing a lot of sales because we really just care about what is your top line growth and then how good are you at spending your ad dollars, because that's your main use of funds. And then that's where we are really good at. And, and from the inventory perspective, I almost like an inventory to ads in that if you know your return on ads, then you know what the return is on your inventory. It's just a mechanism to deliver what the ad is selling. So we support both. Matter of time, yeah. How do you work out which businesses to work with and which ones it's better to be left over? Are there like any key criteria? You mentioned like data-driven investment, right? So is there like some sort of maybe you're even you're using some sort of algorithm or artificial intelligence to judge these things? Yeah, so it's really any business that has a digital payment processor. So you think of it like Stripe, Shopify, Amazon, Big Commerce. We're starting to do some stuff with some of the folks like Indiegogo in the early kind of pre-launch phase as well. But essentially, we need to be able to read a digital stream of what we call immutable data, data that you can't fake, that you can't falsify. We plug in and have read-only access to that data stream. And that's how we do our underwriting. There's a whole team of engineers that have built a very sophisticated model that essentially is predicting the growth of this business. And that is what we provide our capital against. But other than that, I guess the only types of businesses we do not invest into today are businesses that have constrained growth. So even if you process payments on Square, 
but you are limited as a gym and you have a fixed number of spots or you're a brick and mortar store, you only can service the people in your area. We're not good for that because we're really trying to spend our capital on things that have no cap to their growth, where you can start an e-com store anywhere in US, Canada, the UK, our three biggest markets, but you can sell around the world. And that's where we really perform well. Yeah. And my guess is, you know, once people taste it one time, they always come back, right? Because it just fuels our growth so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As you grow more, you get access to more capital and just becomes this really good booster to your business with what takes you about, you know, take all the steps. Like you can get an offer within a couple of days and get the capital within under a week. You pass your diligence process. It's you can't, no one can fundraise that fast. (laughs) And you never have to leave. You don't have to talk to anyone. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. I mean, what's the average time, you know, that you give on this kind of like a loan or financing to people? Is it like a week or a month, et cetera? We don't get loans. They're called capital advances. So when you plug in your business to ClearBank, you can get offers. Typically, it happens in under a day, up to 48 hours, depending on how big your business is and how complicated the business is. And then from that point, within five to seven business days, again, if you're following all the steps, you can get access to capital. But some people do it you know, within the same day. Some people take a bit longer. It's incredibly fast if you're motivated. Cool. I know that there are like other options of funding, for example, you know, outside funding and giving out a portion of ownership of company, losing a little bit of control, etc. But maybe there are like some type of businesses you would recommend to taking this option instead of, let's say, you know, financing through your model. Yes, I think equity investment, we've taken on a bunch of venture capital equity dollars as ClearBank. In my past company, we raised equity dollars. I think where equity is very, very useful are for things that have order of magnitude impact on the business. Equity is very expensive, right? You're giving up maybe 10% on the very low end to maybe a third or half of your business over subsequent rounds. So if you think about what equity investors are targeting, especially if you go for the very traditional venture, it's like, how do I 3x, 5x, 10x my investment? Which means, let's say if they give you a million dollars, you're expecting $10 million back, that's $9 million. That's your cost of capital in the concept of equity. And so there's nothing wrong with that so long as you can generate a return that's worthwhile paying $9 million for. And to me, those are things like research and development. So are you building a type of business where you can spend money to develop a new product, something that's proprietary, something that's defensible, that will protect you in the long term? Is it hiring a great executive that you think will be a step change in your business to launch into wholesale or to launch into a new market. You know, depending on the type of business, if you're more of a software company, is there massive product improvements you can make with a big injection of capital? So it's like, I would think equity dollars are very good for these kind of zero to one outcomes or like one to 10 outcomes and investing dollars that way. A lot of VCs work with ClearBank because we, even once they put money into the business, like they'd also don't want to be diluted either. Right. And so if it's simply, I'm going to go raise a million dollars, I'm going to put it all into Facebook ads. There's cheaper forms of capital out there. Don't, don't use equity dollars for that because you're going to spend a million bucks and then you have to go raise money again <laughs> unless you become profitable, which hopefully you can. So I think that's how I look at equity. It's very good for step change outcomes for the business. And that's what your investors want as well. They don't want you to put money into Facebook ads. Like, okay, we grew a little bit. They've like put money in this business and it has a chance to 10x. And I know there are like other ways to do the financing and acquiring the capital. And some of them, you know, as we talked about last time and we were having a call, for example, like monthly subscriptions that you transform into like NOT, et cetera, or for example, negotiating with suppliers to finance your stock levels and inventory. Maybe you could talk more about that. Maybe some other tricks. For sure. I'll start to talk about annual subscriptions. Really, there's this concept If I would encourage everyone to read up on it. It's this concept called the cash conversion cycle. And all that means is like, how fast are you at taking cash, putting into your business and generating more cash? 
really, it's like golf. The lower your number or more negative your number is, the better you're doing. So if you compare, let's say, Amazon to Walmart, everyone kind of objectively says Amazon is much better business than Walmart. But if you look at their cash conversion cycles, that supports it. Where Amazon, last time I looked, is in like the negative 20s, whereas Walmart, I think, was close to zero or might have been positive something. And, and that might have changed since I last looked at the numbers. But all this to say is what Amazon, what that means is with a very negative number is that they collect cash and then they don't have to give the cash to anyone for 30 days from the day they collect it. And there's three elements to it is one, how early can you get paid? Two, how late can you push off paying your suppliers? And three, how fast can you turn your inventory? So what you ideally want is like for the perfect cash conversion cycle is you collect money today, inventory immediately comes in, goes out. So it doesn't sit for any period of time. And you don't have to pay people for years and years and years. That's like the extreme example of what a good cash conversion cycle would be. And so understanding that framework, that's where subscription businesses and driving annual subscriptions become very useful. So with Luxbox, for example, we didn't raise any external financing, it was all financed internally. But one of the things that really helped us keep the business running was we converted about 52% of our base to pay us annually upfront to subscribe to our service for a year, which meant today I got a year's worth of cash to run the business and I didn't have to pay my suppliers and all that. I didn't have to pay them in that moment. I paid them over three periods, our team, our fixed costs, and I'm paying them all up front their salary and paying them over 12 months. And that really helped us run the business and just live off of that cash. And so there's some modern day versions of that. And let's say you can't do that. You're not a subscription business. It doesn't make sense to do upfront subscriptions. There's a company called Bessie that I saw that did something pretty innovative. It's a waterproof running shoe. It's run out of here in Canada. And they did something where they launched a new shoe, but you could pay $5 to reserve it because they're known for selling out their product. And so they're pulling $5 upfront as this reservation fee that goes against the shoe. And so you know it's not a dramatic amount of cash, but you could apply this in so many different ways, especially if you're an early stage business, if you're being good at leveraging weight lists and scarcity, there's probably value for people paying to reserve. And so Tesla raised like millions of dollars to reserve your car, and you paid a thousand bucks a car. So Tesla has a lot of capital, but they got millions of dollars in cash by doing a pre-sale reservation, right? Another version of it is just doing pre-sales. And so you can do it through on your own site. I think a lot of consumers are more trusting of a platform like Indiegogo, where you can essentially launch a new collection, but have people buy in and fund the production of it before you ever do it. And so I would encourage all the people listening here is how can you just get as much cash up front before you do anything? Because it does two things. One, it obviously gives you cash to fund what you're doing. But two, it's also a data point of like, let's say you do this Indiegogo campaign and no one buys it, it's like your product probably sucks or your marketing sucks. This is like, don't go drop tens of thousands or hundred thousand dollars on inventory and something no one's going to buy. So that's all on like, how do you bring cash up front? And then on, on the supplier piece, I really just stole this from one of our venture partners, a friend of mine named Jesse Horwitz. He's one of the founders and co-CEOs of a company called Hubble Contacts, which is they raised over $75 million from Colgate and a number of other investors to build a subscription contact lens business in the US. They're also, I think, in the UK and Canada, a couple other markets. And that's really how he grew Hubble was he essentially went to contact lens manufacturers. He's repeated this to other businesses to say, you don't have a direct consumer arm. I can be a direct consumer arm for you. And I'll give you a piece of the business. I'll give you a substantial equity stake in the business. And in exchange, give me better terms, extend my payment terms, give me a lower cost of goods. And that then gives him a permanent competitive advantage in the market. And so this is an example of where an equity investment makes a lot of sense because 
Yeah, I don't know what he gave. Let's say a substantial stake could be 10, 15%. Who knows, right? That's an expensive chunk of the business, but now you have a permanent competitive advantage where the next person that goes into the market, they may call the supplier. They don't want to do the equity deal and their cost of goods are 20, 30% higher. So they can't pay the same amount for ads as you can. So you can probably bid them out of the market. By just having a lower margin, you can move faster and you just price compete everyone out of the market. And so I think that's why it's such a smart strategy. And it won't apply to every business, obviously. Not every supplier will want to do an equity deal with you. And you know, when I did that talk with Jesse where he kind of talked through this, he was like, at the end of the day, you're like this little peanut compared to this big behemoth when you're starting. So check yourself at the door and understand that you don't have incredible leverage. But if you're a good operator, if you've proved yourself, those are things I would consider looking at. Leaning on your suppliers as a source of financing above and beyond seeking like equity capital itself. Yeah. And once again, these things are interesting. Some of them, maybe, you know, I could mention two things that we are using with our own clients to deal with these situations. So one of them is for like selling, let's say, consumable product, etc. What you can do is just do quantity upsells. I mean, selling not one product that person would be using for a month or two, but selling three or four or five items stack for a discount. This way, kind of like leaning back to a similar idea of what you had with subscriptions and paying here upfront, right? This is kind of different, not subscription, but I think this will be more applicable to majority of businesses and people listening to this podcast. Another thing would be just deferring payments. Honestly, if you have a track record of your current supplier, call them up and say, you know, hey, I will pay you a bit more if you can allow me to pay 90 days later. First, send me the stock, right? And I will pay you later. This is how you basically build up capital. And suddenly, you know, you have like additional 50, 100K of a bank. For a smaller business, it could be a huge difference. And if you're a bigger one, you could get completely exclusive terms. It depends how well you deal with these things. Once again, strategy is important. Okay, let's talk about a different topic. You get the injection of cash, right? What is next for a business? What do you see, you know, the smartest players in the market doing with the cash materials receiving? It really just becomes like a math equation of where are you going to get the best return on your investment. So I'll put aside any kind of like fixed costs. So if you make sure you have the right team, make sure you have all the infrastructure to do all the things you need to do to scale. I'm a big believer of you don't want to dump a bunch of growth into a business that can't support it because then you're just going to make everyone disappointed. So that means you want to make sure you're not going to stock out. You make sure you want to handle customer service, whatever could break when you scale the business. Like be mindful to have money set aside to fix those things or invest in those things, or else you're going to just bleed a lot of customers and ultimately not come out the other side too well. So putting that aside, which will be unique for every business, I think when you start looking tactically at your different marketing channels, you should really look at like how well can each scale and what's the upper limit of that. So the reason why Facebook and Google dominate the market is they have almost like an unlimited amount of inventory for marketers to buy, whereas things like programmatic display or your very old school, like doing deals with publishers and things like that, the audiences are very small. Even podcasts, like I've heard very mixed reviews from marketers where some are very, they find it very good economics. But at some point, once you've bought the top five, 10 podcasts, your growth as a business is limited by the growth of that podcast. And so it's like thinking about in terms of the best marketers I talked to in the exact days was they're very mindful of not only what's the return on investment, but how much can this scale? And if they really can't scale that much, then it's not even worth testing because if it's like crushing it, I won't dramatically grow my business if I can't double, triple down and get good economics. And really what they're saying there is that the marginal cost of acquiring customers in smaller channels goes up and up and up. Meaning, let's say you did a deal with the Joe Rogan podcast, right? 
his huge podcast, whatever, and you dump a hundred thousand dollars and you get a ten dollar cost of customer acquisition. You're like, oh, amazing. That's so cheap. It's like five times cheaper than what I'm getting on Facebook. And he's like, okay, I'm gonna dump I'm gonna do double the number of Joe Rogan episodes for two hundred thousand dollars. But all of a sudden you're not acquiring any new customers and your marginal cost of the next customer is like a hundred dollars because all the people who love you that listen to Joe Rogan already bought it. And so even if you're blended, be like, oh, okay, I'm acquiring people now for like twenty dollars a customer, it's still cheaper. If that next tranche cost you on a per head basis, 50, 100, whatever it is, it was actually probably not the greatest investment. So you want to think about like pressure testing, well, not what just your average customer cost of acquisition is, but how does that scale as you add more dollars is probably going to look like some curve of like, you're going to get really, really good economics as you get more efficient and figure it out. And then it's going to plateau. And then it's going to start skyrocketing because you kind of tapped this well of customers, whether it's a particular keyword or a particular audience group on Facebook or a particular type of creative or whatever it is. And then you also want to tie that to understanding your lifetime value of that customer. Because even if you may pay double to acquire a customer, if that source is like four times as valuable, it's probably worth it. So you want to look at your return on ad spend, not on that first purchase, but you want to look at it over the long period of time. And I think the best marketers that I've seen are also very frugal and very kind of ruthless at like, if they're not a true subscription business, if you can't really guarantee that like, oh, I'm selling a consumable that you're going to buy and buy again, or I'm like a subscription box where I know you're going to sign up. If you're not 100% sure, there's not a reason for someone to come back. How can I be first purchase profitable? Because there's no guarantee they're going to come back. You really want to figure out how do I make sure I'm not just losing money on this first sale and just banking that they come back because maybe they will for now, maybe they won't. That's like an unknown. And those are the people that run the kind of most efficient businesses. But the last point I'll make too, is if you look at some of the biggest wins in D2C, is they run very lean operations overall. So a great example of this is Native. Native sold their business to Procter & Gamble for $100 million cash upfront. He raised, I think, just a million bucks, and not even, or half a million bucks. Otherwise, all bootstrapped. I think when he sold to P&G, he had eight employees, maybe... 15 at the most, like he was still the one, his name is Moise. Moise was still running the Facebook ads and Pinterest ads himself. Like he had an agency helping him, whatever, but like he was the one running that show. And he sold a business for a hundred million dollars with like, whatever, 10 people, let's call it. And this is the beauty of e-commerce these days, right? You do not need a huge team, right? You do not need like 200, 300 people. Of course, you can go that route, right? But you can also stay lean. Use all these fixed costs that the big giants are burning money through to finance your growth and just basically buy more ads. <laughs> that's it. I'm kind of going on a tangent, but to the goal point, I'm like testing new channels and things like that. Often that's tied to hiring a person to go do that. And that's where agencies or third parties are very, very helpful. Find someone that you can trust to run your digital. But if you're going to go expand into direct mail or podcast, find an agency to do that for you first, because if it doesn't work in, doesn't work out, you and the agency can part ways. You don't have to fire someone. You're not going to go through that emotional strain of like hiring someone and letting them go because you picked the wrong channel, not because they're like a bad operator, right? Yeah, so that's my long answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, longer answer is better. We are all sharing value here. And maybe are like any other often overlooked areas that people should be investing to because we talked about ads, etc. But you get the cash, right? Maybe there are like some areas that a lot of people kind of like miss on. I know at the larger end, I'm seeing more people go into nonlinear TV. So these are companies that are doing in like the hundreds of millions of dollars. Even if you're not venture-backed, it's people at the venture-backed scale. So NBC, NBC Universal has built a team they call Direct to Scale that's meant to just focus on supporting these types of high growth direct to consumer businesses. The cost of testing TV is not as expensive 
as most think. You can do it for like 100,000 or 100,000 and dabble in it. So that's like a new area that probably is not a fit for like the person just starting out. But if you are seeing good economics and you have extra cash and you're really trying to grow, TV still works as long as you can find the good economics behind it. Really outside of that, my personal background expertise has always been in partnerships and business development. I mean, that's how Exact started. That's how we did a lot of our deals back at Luxbox was we didn't do paid ads. We just partnered with influencers, partnered with publishers. I couldn't say this is a repeatable thing for everyone because you have to have the skill set and your product has to be able to fit with others. But can you think about other founders and other businesses where you can partner or bundle. It's no different than thinking about it of going into retail and wholesale. The broader answer is another thing I've seen a lot of people doing is not ignoring brick and mortar and just going, getting a wholesale director and going after your targets, your Walmarts, Amazon, you can do FBA, depending on what country you're in, there's different retailers that I would look at and sell into. And that is like, if you look at Harry's as a great example, Harry's, I think when I last saw them do a presentation, like more than half their sales came from Walmart even though they're this great direct-to-consumer brand, it's really a Walmart brand. Partnerships. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so the partnerships with Walmart, it's really just a B2B sales process. But on a smaller angle, there are great sites like fair.com, for example, where you can have your product bought by kind of small independent boutique retailers. So little gift shops around the US and Canada, as an example. And so I I wouldn't ignore wholesale or non-direct-to-consumer retail. It could mean doing a partnership, let's say if you're a shoe brand, is partnering with an apparel brand and you know cross-selling your shoes on their site and their apparel on your site. And how do you just get this free distribution by trading your audiences and things like that? Those are, I think, underrated, underlooked things. If you can find the right partnerships, that's, I would say, hard to say, here's a scalable thing that works for everyone because there's so many factors that'll determine if that's possible or not. Awesome. So Luca, I think we kind of covered pretty much all the questions here. So what, really appreciative of your time. And maybe you could direct people where they could learn more about you and ClearBank. And maybe, you know, figure out if your solution is what we need. Yeah, so you can go to clearbank.com and we have a few different tools to help out e-commerce founders. It all starts with getting a, a free valuation of your company. So within 24 hours, you can get a sense of how much is your business worth and use that. A lot of our founders are using that as a way to stay accountable, to say, how am I growing my valuation week over week? That number always continues to update. And then from there, that helps you get access to some of our other tools. We have insights and benchmarking that'll help you understand how you're performing relative to your peers on things like return on ad spend, customer acquisition costs, and so on. And then from a capital perspective, as we talked a little bit about, we can fund companies up to $10 million by simply connecting your accounts and engaging with our team. It takes you know no more than 48 hours to get an offer. You can do it completely self-serve or talk to someone on our team to do that. And we're really here to fund your repeatable growth. So if you're looking to gear up for Black Friday, Cyber Monday with ad spend, or you're making inventory buy for 2021, if you're about to sell out of your inventory for this year, we have our marketing product for ads and then our inventory product. Essentially, we will buy your inventory and you won't have to pay us until you sell it. And so it's a pretty attractive value prop if that's something you need. Awesome. So what, Daniel, thank you for coming here today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on the show and I look forward to chatting again with you soon. Enjoying this podcast? Consider subscribing and sharing it with your friends. This helps us to grow and create more amazing content like this for you.